Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. We're dispensing stories of success from across the continuum of care. I'm your host, Hillary Blackburn. Thanks for joining us to learn from leaders throughout the pharmacy industry. This podcast is sponsored by TheraWorks Relief. Many of you get sore, achy legs from standing all day or get asked about painful foot and leg cramps. If so, you're going to want to hear about TheraWorks Relief, a clinically proven topical foam that prevents and relieves muscle cramps and soreness. Learn more at theraworksrelief.com. Hey listeners, in today's episode, you'll hear more about AI and population health access and quality from a panel discussion at Becker's Hospital Reviews Clinical IT and Pharmacy Conference that was in May. I was on a panel with some really key leaders in the technology space, Uh, Adam Myers from the Cleveland Clinic, who is over their chief of population health and Charles Watson, who is the chief medical information officer at Kettering Health Network. And analyzing that data and identifying the patterns and recognize when you deviate from those patterns, um, I think is a good starting point. Yeah, I'd, I'd venture to say that if you had five people, you'd probably get about six or seven answers. But um, I, you know, I would echo a lot of what my colleague here said. Uh, I would say technically artificial intelligence means replacement of human intelligence. That's what it literally means. But very rarely do we either see that or actually want that. Uh, What we typically see is more what I would call augmented intelligence, where we have uh, computers, analytics, data processing that does exactly what you described, which is recognize visible, reproducible, predictable patterns and uses that to call data in such a way that you can act on data rather than having to analyze it yourself. Um, so that's primarily the difference between the two, but there's a lot that, that AI can do, uh, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Yeah, and I would just say that AI is using computers to assist in human decision-making, such as detecting diseases. And there's a lot of uh, excitement about it right now. Uh, But in fact, AI has been around for decades. Uh, But most of the success has just been outside of the healthcare industry. Uh, So I'm really excited that we're going to be discussing some of the ways that we can implement that and continue to grow that in the healthcare space. And on that same thread, um, we're going to jump into exactly why you're here today. Um, Adam, can you describe how the healthcare industry can use AI to accomplish population health management? Sure. Uh, one of the ways, I guess, has already been described, which is evaluating images for patterns and evaluating data sets for patterns. Things like radiology review and radiology image analysis, things like retinal scan analysis that can be produced, the computers can generate, are there signs of retinopathy here or not, and then if there are, those images get flagged for overread by actual humans that are skilled in assessing what they need to be doing and making the clinical decision making at, at that point. Part of it, though, has to do with predicting clinical risk, which is one of the main ways that we've applied it so far. Uh, You can also use it to predict treatment adherence based on historical trends that people have. You can also model what are the effects of changes in your care model on both 
your financial outcomes, your operational demands, as well as clinical outcomes. Um, and that that can be used for budgeting and forecasting in, in new payment models based on what your population analytics are. Um, and then finally, uh, again, to the main thing is that it comes back to all of this produces data and decisions that have to be evaluated by people in healthcare. We just, we owe that to ourselves. Yeah, so um, there are a lot of opportunities within population health. So um, as we all know, healthcare data is just continuing to grow. I think I saw a stat that it's growing at an annual rate of 48%. So how are we going to manage all of this data? And so um, AI is just one of those technologies to help better sort and utilize it. Um, so a couple of different ways to better um, manage the health outcomes of populations. Um, so, you know, we, we've got um, wearables and apps and different things uh, to help better manage patients outside of the hospital and, and to help predict, uh, you know, which patients need better help in those scenarios, better manage chronic disease uh, from that standpoint. Um, you know, a lot of ways within the pharmaceutical industry, um, better use of, of clinical trials and, and helping with drug discovery. Um, and then also with, with cost savings. So, um, you know, we, we're looking more towards value-based care and how, um, you know, is this medication better than another? Uh, and so AI could be one of those tools to help um, really streamline and build models for the most cost-effective drug therapy. And I think Adam said it best. It's, in medicine, it's more augmented intelligence than artificial intelligence. There have been studies where, yes, the machines have beaten the radiologists in doing reads, but for socioeconomic and medical legal reasons, none of the vendors are, or the physicians are ready to go there at that point. And I don't think we should be, as an industry, ready to go there at this point. Um, as far as population health, I'll give an example in Dayton. Um, in one area of Dayton, we have the largest, quote, food desert um, east of the Mississippi River. And what is that doing to the health of that population in those zip codes? So we're utilizing a lot of the data on our patients in those zip codes. And then, in, I think it's next month, we open up, we're the largest investor in a co-op grocery that we're putting into that area in Dayton. What's it gonna do to those chronic conditions that we're seeing in those zip codes. I'm real interested in how we're going to apply the AI to that. And so what are some of those channels? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes, uh, at some point, could you touch on uh, further decision-making, such as IBM's Watson Healthcare, which they're now, um, I believe, exiting. So yeah. They may feed into some of the things you've already discussed. Yeah, I can speak to that a little bit. We, we do have an interaction and a relationship with IBM at the clinic, but you know, the computers and the analysis are really good at rapid performance of predictable algorithmic analysis. Not a replacement for human thought. And for instance, the algorithms typically are constructed by people to mirror clinical decision-making and then automate it. They, you still have to have people involved to figure out exactly what do we do with this, at least at this point. Now as machine learning grows and becomes 
more competent and capable, then the machines themselves can build their own algorithms based on the outcomes that are observed. But I, I, I would say there are people that say we're there, but from a functional day-to-day -day perspective, in healthcare, we're not ready to turn that over yet. I think the IBM example with MD Anderson, when you get into the genetics and the genome analysis, I think it's, as Adam said, there are areas that are too complex for the machines at this point, and that's one of them. Um, I think there are plenty of places where it's helping us, and I do think, um, I'm not a geneticist, but I know it gets very, very complex, um, but I, and eventually, I think they'll get there, but that's going to take a while. Well, I mean, if you think about it, really, the, a lot of what happens in healthcare, fortunately and unfortunately, bears down on clinical judgment. Mm -hmm. And only about 11% of what we do in medicine, as much as evidence-based medicine is a, an effort and a buzzword, really only about 11% of what we do in healthcare is truly based on high quality data and evidence. So, unless we want to stop doing the other, you know, 89% of things, which we're not probably interested in yet either, that people are still going to be involved in a lot of those things because there's not evidence and algorithms necessary to support all of them. As you've spoken, AI has been around for several decades. This suggests that there should be some sort of a maturity by now. What is preventing AI from being used as a final decision-making mechanism in the healthcare area? <laughs> you, you were the one that said it had been around for decades. So, so that's your question. Well, you know, I think there are a lot of barriers to implementation. Um, there are a lot of new technologies out there like blockchain um, that have been proven in other industries, and we're just now trying to identify use cases. Um, so with, with AI, I think it's, it's just more of... Um, you know, talking about some of those barriers to um, implementation. So, you know, we've got fear of um, taking over human roles, um, which, you know, I don't necessarily think is the case. I think that um, speaking to what Adam brought up is, I think it's a better way to, to automate and standardize so that we can continue to do some of that more, um, the, the part of taking care of the patient that requires that human touch and human decision making. I'll take a stab at adding on a little bit. When you check out at the, the, the cash register at a Walmart, just using Walmart as an example, and you buy your items, each and every item doesn't just show up in the cash register as a, as a charged item. It literally communicates real time back to Bentonville, Arkansas, that the next truck that comes out to that Walmart needs to have another one of those on it. We're not that way in healthcare. And having the transparency of data able to do that, they are on one data system. Within our clinically integrated network of 7,200 clinicians that is part of what I operate, we have 53 EMRs. And so I would say that part of what is holding us back is the congruence of interoperable data necessary to really apply the machine learning and the AI that has already been applied in many other industries. 
So I think that's really one of the one of the things that's holding us back. I do think you're right. I mean, we've had EKG machines have put out an impression for decades when you get an EKG, but when they started, they weren't very good. They could tell you, yeah, you maybe you've got tachycardia, but they weren't real good at recognizing waveforms. They've gotten much better. I think we've still got a ways to go, and I think medical legally, there's the vendors aren't real interested in taking the responsibility, medical legal responsibility of making a diagnosis at this point. Someday it will be probably. Somebody will say, yeah, our, I have enough faith in our product, we're going to put it out there and we'll take that medical legal risk. Um, but I don't think we're there yet. Yet there are some, still some really good uses that, that are in play right now. And I don't know, I mean, do you guys want to jump in on what some of the ways that you're using it? Well, I have a follow-up question. Yeah, please. Go ahead. There's the 53 EMR right. that you're using. Is that a fault of the AI, or is that really a fault of management <coughs> to compel the unused one central EMR mechanism? Well, I, I didn't in any way suggest that it was a fault of AI. I said it was a rate-limiting step for AI. Um, it is... And a clinically integrated network is such that these are independent physicians who are working together to an end. And there are economic constraints associated with, uh, with embracing EMRs. And so these are 7,200 clinicians across a wide geography that had EMRs of their own and to simply compel them would be relatively untenable. So what we need to do Instead, is to find ways for sharing of data and, and uh, creating interoperability among the EMRs so that the data can be shared meaningfully rather than having to essentially make one EMR to rule them all, uh, like a Lord of the Rings statement. <laughs> what, what they're doing in Europe with that, though, is they're doing on-site data mining, and then they're condensing those standards and then sharing that information and, and that's what we're doing as well, but it is much more labor-intensive and less facile in the ways that are necessary to spread AI thus far. Yeah, with our clinically integrated network, if we're bringing in that disparate data, we only have 40 different EMRs within our CIN, but it's still a huge task to bring all that data in and normalize it and then apply the AI to that data. Um, why don't we have a, I mean, you don't want to go into the politics of EMR adoption and implementation, but, you know, I think even now the government has seen, oh yeah, maybe we should have done this better as far as interoperability. Um, so I work in a clinical integrated network as well, and so we do that data mining where we have independent physicians who want to use their own EMR because of cost reasons, and they've been doing this for a long time. So I guess, as a tactic, how do you mitigate those kind of, I think our biggest challenge is influencing prescribers who've been in the traditional maybe paper method, getting them onto an EMR, and then also kind of showing, once we get the data that's all uniform, and showing them this doctor is doing you know, this measure a little bit better, let's see what they're doing, but how do you kind of influence their practice to kind of utilize the data that you present? Well, I'll switch We'll repeat the question. Yeah. Basically, the question was, how do you take uh, the information from disparate uh, IT systems across in a clinically integrated network 
and then use that data and that, that information in such a way that you motivate the individual practitioners to transform the care and change the care and improve. Is that fairly accurate? And I think it is very labor intensive, bringing that, normalizing that data, bringing it into a single database and then being able to do all the things you want to do with that data. Um, there are some mature CIMs out there that said, you know, we're going to limit it. You're, you're going to be on one of three EMRs. There are some who said, no, you're going to be on what the hospital network EMR is if you're going to be part of the CIM. That wouldn't work in our community. We have to work with our independent providers. Um, otherwise, they're going to say, well, heck with them. I'm not going to join your CIM. So we have to work with them. And it is. It's very labor intensive at this point. I think interoperability is a, you know, this is supposed to be AI when you talk about interoperability. But I think it is a big part of what's going on. I think it was um, Seema Burma said at uh, HIMSS this year in a not-so-veiled threat that interoperability is a problem of epic proportions. Shows <laughs> <laughs> her words well. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of education, are you aware of the 2014 Drug Disposal of Controlled Substances ruling that regards safe disposal of unused medications? Well, we're lucky to have RX Destroyer sponsoring the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. RX Destroyer ready-to-use chemical drug disposal systems are safe, easy, and affordable products, which protect the environment and can save thousands in fines. To get more information on products, training, and medication waste, compliance, check out www.rxdestroyer.com slash talk to your pharmacist. Um, turning back to um, AI, where I know that we talked about the threat of potentially replacing humans, but where do you see, I know Heather, you kind of mentioned that that threat may not be um, a true threat. Where do you see humans and healthcare professionals as this wave of AI kind of comes through? What is their future role? I may take a stab at that. Um, currently, right now, there's two big ways in which we're using AI. One, we built our own uh, uh, our own risk model, and uh, we have about 1.9 million patients that we entered into this risk model. It was proprietary. We looked at the ones that were already out there, and decided to build our own, and it takes into account about 130 different variables, and they're not variables from claims data. They're variables from clinical data. And the reason why is because if you wait on claims data to come through, you're always chasing prior events. If you're building it based on clinical data and based on patient-entered data, then you can do it in a more real-time fashion. So that's the way that we built it. And as we've done this, we have built those registries and uh, we've found that now we can predict for our own 1.9 million patients, in all likelihood, who is gonna have some sort of significant decline in the next six months to about 85, 90%. And that score shows on the EMR every time that you open up the EMR and look at the patient. And you can click on that score and it will show you specifically which variables contribute most heavily to their heightened risk so that then you can work to proactively mitigate them. So that's one application of AI that we found that is fruitful. Another are seeing, one. Are you seeing providers buy into that? Are they enjoying that? Uh, yeah, it's just part of our, our, our own EMR, and we're building, trying to create ways to share it across the clinically integrated network. 
but within the employed group, that's what we're doing. But then one other thing that we did to apply it significantly was in the bulk ordering phase, and this gets to people. Uh, having the laboratories in the record, the laboratory results in the record prior to a, an appointment is a desirable thing. It, it aids efficiency. The physician, clinician, APP can sit with the patient and discuss the outcomes rather than just saying, oh, I'm glad you're here, we need to order some labs. They can actually follow up on the labs. And the ability to predict what is necessary from any given visit to evaluate them is, is not that difficult. Um, and so what we had originally was we had 30 MAs across a variety of our practices that spent full-time, 30 full-time MAs, and that's all they did, was they called the charts prior to visits and determined what labs were most likely to be needed based on algorithms that we had built ourselves and clinical pathways that we built ourselves. They ordered, they would order the labs, but then what would happen was then the physicians would say, I don't like that algorithm, so I'm gonna have you sort of order them my way. And instead of sticking with the algorithms, we found that there were, uh, you know, each doc had their own sort of pathway and it digressed from there. We built a system now to where, based on AI, any patient that's scheduled within the next 20 days for an ambulatory visit, on Monday morning, the EMR and this algorithm goes in and digs through all of their variables and determines based on our evidence-based protocols, which laboratories really need to be ordered and orders them. So we took 30 MAs full-time and shifted it down to one MA to sort of run that process. The other 30 MAs were able to be still utilized, but more effectively, they now proactively reach out to help close gaps in care and actually provide care rather than just massage the data. And we found that not only were the labs present that needed to be there, but we were, had 50% fewer insurance denials for labs that were being ordered unnecessarily. So it's a real win-win outcome uh, and be able to really use people for what they're best at, which is decision-making and engaging with other people rather than just calling charts to figure out what to order. Great. Go ahead. Uh, thank you for that example. That was uh, really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about the timeline it took to get, um, I guess, your EMR pathways built and people documenting correctly, because I could imagine those algorithms must be based on information being documented correctly and in the right place. In yeah, it is. Um, you know, and, and we have about 130 variables, as I said, in the predictive algorithm. Obviously, it becomes more refined and more, more predictive the more variables are actually entered. Uh, but there is some uh, validity to it, even if there are, are, are a lower number, we figured out that probably about 20 of the variables are the most impactful. So that's where we started, emphasizing those 20 variables being entered appropriately and accurately. Uh, but it, it's just grown. It takes years to get there, but uh, this process started a couple of years ago. We started with our predictive analytics, um, like our deterioration in the hospital risk model, and. You have to start with some model. We started, I think, with the University of Iowa's model um, that they had built in Epic. And we have since refined that now over the last nine months to where, yes, our prediction rate has gone up significantly by utilizing the factors that our 
subject matter experts considered important, but it's an ongoing process. Same thing with you know, estimated length of stay, risk of readmission. You're always starting with some model, but involving your network subject matter experts and getting them involved. And if you can show that the percentages are increasing on the successes, um, then they tend to get more involved. The gentleman at the end. I have a three-part question. One is, what's your, have to talk up a little bit. what's your software development team and SMEs, what's the structure of that team? What platform is it built on, and then how do you access it from your system? We are a community hospital. We're not really an academic institution or a community network. Um, our IT department supports the subject matter experts, but they're largely volunteers. We'll go to the service lines that we're working with get leaders and say who might be interested from the hospital. We try to get representatives from each institution because it makes it go much easier if you do. Um, and then we will get them in the room with the IS analysts and work on a given pathway. Um, and again, these guys are largely doing it voluntarily. Um, and we try to meet centrally or we'll rotate campuses to do it. Um, but yeah, it's somewhat of a struggle because these are practicing physicians that are the subject matter experts, at least in our institutions. We uh, have a, a fairly robust analytics team uh, and data warehouse and data lake. Uh, it's built, the, we use Epic as our EMR of choice, uh, but we do have other software platforms that do pieces of the analytics for us, including some of the work with IBM. Um, and our subject matter experts come from our clinical faculty, uh, and uh, it's they don't they they volunteer, but it's it's part of what they're passionate about. And we just actually launched in uh, February uh, a new division at the Cleveland Clinic uh, for artificial intelligence and healthcare. Yeah, um, we're utilizing Nuance, and I really think that's a very exciting use of AI at this point. Um, I think Nuance and Epic are partnering on some really interesting stuff. They showed at Epic's user group meeting last year, um, and talking with some of my contacts up at Epic, um, there's a real good chance that keyboards will disappear within the next five to 10 years. It'll be very Star Trek-y, where you'll tell the computer to put the orders in. It will develop the note from conversation between you and the patient. Um, and I used to think that was way far off, but it doesn't look like it's that far right now. Amen to that. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, natural language processing is part of what we do. It's, uh, I mean, over 80% of the EMR data is unstructured. And that's why it's important in order to get the most out of the EMR. Uh, being able to access the unstructured data in the form of analytics is critical. We all talk about AI, but we know it's based on data. Do you think it's feasible to have decentralized data and everyone can go to mine that data and have an app for it uh, for this uh, particular uh, you mean like like a global data lake of some sort? And then everyone go in mind to it and then develop an app, for example, for what you have for your team. Uh, does this 
he scored at me and somebody else scored at me or something. But uh, we, we all fighting at the same thing. You know, I think that would be a, a great thing uh, in, in a way. But if we could get past the privacy, if we could get past the security, if we could get past uh, all the, uh, you'd have to have like a plethora of business associate agreement. I mean, it, it would get really messy. But if, 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 we, if we could get somehow past all that, from a just sheer clinical perspective, would that be wonderful? Yeah, but I think there's a lot of constraint from a regulatory perspective that would makes that unfeasible. Yeah, I think the technical part would be the easy part. Yeah, I think we could do it technically real easily, but... Ownership of data more. is everything. Right. Epic's doing a... I think they are developing a database called Cosmos, which is their research database, and are asking all customer, their customers to contribute their de-identified data into this research database. I think that's kind of exciting. Yeah. Yeah, or even it, within the pharmaceutical supply chain, you've got the new DSCSA regulation, and it's really tricky to try to implement that because none of the, the different parts within that supply chain want to necessarily share their data. And so they're looking at different technologies to try to implement that. the question that was asked before, why don't we have more AI, uh, it's probably a similar answer to why don't we have more speech recognition. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that there are, there are three reasons why that is. Uh, I think the of it is GIGO. You know, you have, even if you had only one EHR in your 1.9 million patient system, Getting the unstructured data out is nearly impossible to get meaningful data. Um, the second part of that is heuristics, is that you know someone here earlier, not in this room, said you have 10 surgeons in the same room, you get 20 different answers. So who decides which is the correct answer out of those 20, 20 answers? And the other quarter of this is the cost, because this is not an inconsequential amount of energy, time, and effort to make this whole thing happen. So if my question is, is that for AI, uh, you guys have large multi-hospital systems, 1.9 million patients, et cetera. For the rest of the world that doesn't have that kind of backing, what are your suggestions for making this happen for everyone else? You know, AI for the rest of us, so to speak. You know, I think over time it'll get uh, to where it is more real time. I mean, even convenience stores have some of the data systems that Walmart has now. You know, a corner convenience store. But in the beginning, that never would have been feasible. And still, they still had the you know the keypad with the the, the paper ticker as the as the cash register. Uh, but as the as it becomes more real time in the larger systems it will become less expensive and get refined and become available to everybody. And that's part of what we're hoping to do. And I think that's the government's idea with interoperability. It is, it is going to get less expensive. When we start applying APIs to some of the smaller systems, again, I can now do the same thing that the ethics and the servers can do because I can have interoperability with an API to get the same data. Um, so I do think it'll get less expensive. Um, as the interoperability advances. 
you just have to start somewhere. And so, you know, even with value-based care, most health systems probably haven't fully implemented that. Um, so with AI, you know, what we know is that it gets more sophisticated as you use it. So, you know, just getting started and then being able to, it, it will learn and, and give you what you need. So for AI, we all know that it's all about data. Yeah? And um, what is important is that the data is valid. And the second thing is the continuum of the data. The single point data is not going to help us. And sometimes the self-reported data cannot be that accurate and everything. Regarding the population health, during the hospitalization, let's say that we have a perfect data, which is not correct. But let's have the, it's in our control. We can make that happen. But after discharge, then what is what is your thoughts like? Or what are your thoughts about how we can get that continuum of the data? Because if you are going to use the AI, we need to have that data. We cannot say that why artificial intelligence is not working in healthcare. No, it is working, but we don't have the right input to it, so it's not going to give us the right output. So my question to you is: Did you, in your health systems? Uh, or hospitals, did you have a way of capturing that stream of data after discharge, which we know is going to have a big impact, for example, on readmission and this and that. So do we have a way to look at that or? In our institution, that's the whole case management module. You know, yes, they're out of the hospital, but now the case managers are still entering data. They're still in contact with those patients and entering more data into the record. Um, so, yes, that's case management, and that's what we're expanding at least, um, so that we can get after the hospitalization and the ongoing data, coordinating the data between the ambulatory and the hospital environment, especially when they're disparity in ours. Um, so I do think, yes, the case management mod model is going to help that. Our home health providers are on the same EMR. Our division that does house calls, because we have a division of physicians, paramedics, and APPs that does house calls, they're on the same EMR. Additionally, we, uh, for certain diagnoses such as heart failure, what have you, we oftentimes, depending on the ability to get it covered, send our patients home with connected devices, uh, such as scales, you know, wearables, things like that, that daily upload automatically information directly into our EMR where that is there directly. And we have a cadre of RNs that call through that data and de determine based on what flags, do we need to do something about this? Because they see a bump in somebody's weight and they call and determine, is this something that's of significance or is it uh, somehow an error that they wore, you know, clunkier shoes when they were on the scale today? Uh, so that's, part of why we're trying to get, how we're trying to get the continuum of data. Yeah, I mean, it's about how do you get connected to the patient outside of the hospital. And so, do you have community partners um, that can input data that you're sharing, uh, wearables, apps? Um, I think that we're gonna start seeing more of the digital practitioner. Um, so as you know, more and more apps are being developed or more, I think 80% of internet users are Googling their health. So don't we wanna have practitioners that are uh, helping them interpret their information? Um, so I think that those are, are just 
a couple of different ways um, to be able to capture that outside of the hospital and, and be connected. Well, I think that's all the time we have for this panel. Um, and if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the show notes at www.pharmacyadvisory.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk to Your Pharmacist, produced by the Pharmacy Advisory Group. If you liked this episode, let us know by subscribing to the podcast, rating, and reviewing it. Share it with friends. And if you want to be a guest or know a pharmacist leader who has a great story to tell, connect with me, Hillary Blackburn, on LinkedIn and check out our Facebook page, Pharmacy Advisory Group, for updates on new podcasts. Thanks for listening.